0: All right, everyone. Well, we have come to a very important subject now when talking about Islam, which is really dealing now with the Quran and especially um, talking about the transmission of the Quran. Now, by the transmission of the Quran, what we're talking about is how did the Quran come together? How was it transmitted? How was it compiled? How was it gathered into different manuscripts? How was it gathered together from all of the sources? Um, yeah, from all. Oh, yeah, I got a red light. Oh, this would help. How that came off, I don't know. All right, how's that? Test one, two. Test, okay, good, I got a thumbs up. That's good enough. So, let me explain what the Quran is, okay? There's two important words uh, that come to uh, describe the Quran. The Quran. It's the word kalam and the word sifa. Okay. The Quran, according to Muslims, is the kalam of Allah, which speaks about the divine speech. Okay. The divine speech. Now, a sifa is something that. Uh, speaks about the attributes of Allah. Uh, The attributes of Allah. So, what the Quran claims to be is the divine kalam of God that possesses the sifa of God, of Allah. Okay? Uh, Maybe just as a little bit of a side note, some of you might have um, maybe thought in your mind, what about the word Allah? Allah, right? What about the word Allah? What, what do we make of this word? Um, and what I mean by that is not so much um, maybe where it came from, but like is it proper for us as Christians to refer to God as Allah? Yes, sir? Well, uh, there's two sides to that argument. One saying that it's simply the Arabic term that means God. However, with the baggage that comes along with that term, it's probably not wise
1: to use that that term uh, because we want to be known as other, as holy, as different uh, than anything else. And if you use the word Allah, most of the time you're gonna think of uh, of, of, uh, of Islamic uh, or Muslim uh, faith.
0: Well, (laughs) that's right and and, and, and But there's a lot more to it than that because we asked the word, you know, we asked about where did the word Allah come from? And uh, there's a big debate as far as that goes uh, where the word Allah comes from. Um, Some say that it's a compound of uh, Al-Ilah, and then overuse it became Allah. Okay? Geographically, uh, today, depending on uh, who you ask in the Arab world, okay, um, especially Christians. You talk to Christians in the Arab world and there's a debate among them. Some of them would agree, would say what, what Robert just said, that it's just the word for God. So they worship, uh, so you have Arabic churches that are praising God and using the word Allah, <laughs> okay? And they have no problem with it. But other Muslims in different provinces, I think like Indonesia, for example, I think uh, Christian Christian Arabs or, Christ, or Christians that know about the word Allah, they wouldn't want to use that word. And even in some Arabic-speaking locations, they don't want to use the word Allah after they convert to Christianity. They want to use a different, more generic term for God, like Elah or something like that. Um, so it's just a debate. So uh, you, you're, you're going to come across this when you're dealing with Islamic apologetics. And, you know, it's up to you if you want to choose to die on that hill. Uh, when I talk to Muslims, that's not really the hill I want to die on, except for, let's define what you mean by Allah, right? Uh, same thing as a, a, a cult like a Mormon cult or a Jehovah Witness cult. If they use the word God, well, I use the word God, right? If they use the word Lord, well, I use the word Lord, right? It has more to do with what do you mean by what you say than the term itself. So <clears throat> just kind of a, a side note there. But uh, this really is, you guys, the very heart of our discussion so far, because now we're talking about the text of the Quran. We're getting into the actual book of Muslims, and we want to understand how did this book come together, and how did it happen? Understanding that when you're talking about, is it over here? It is over here. I just learned to just go looking over here somewhere, and it'll be there. <laughs> but the uh, the eraser here. But uh, a lot of different things um, led up to the collection of the of the uh, the Quran. Understand, for example, that the Quran was not handed down in a manuscript, right? So, even though Muslims believe in a doctrine known as Tanzil. Tanzil is the Arabic word for handed down, okay? And in this sense, what they're saying is that the this is the opposite of what the Bible teaches in terms of inspiration. So it's not the equivalent of inspiration, right? It's Tanzil, you know, versus inspiration, if you would, right? Because what does the doctrine of inspiration say in terms of how about we got the Bible, did God simply give the disciples a golden tablet? Did God speak into the ear of Paul and told him, this is what you're going to write on the parchment? <laughs> right? <laughs> so they didn't get those kinds of, of uh, types of inspiration. That's not what inspiration in the Bible, in the, in the biblical sense of the word is. When we say inspiration, coming from the Greek word duanustos, right, God breathed, okay, but the process of that means that God uses the human author in terms of his mind, his style of writing, his contextual background, his historical background, his personality. He uses everything of the author in order to convey the divine word of God through him. He doesn't, in other words, bypass the author. It's not like the author becomes a pen in the hand of God and, right, and he has no, no part to play in it and God just simply writes the word through him that way. That would turn man into like a typewriter. That's not what man is. But in Islam, you have something more to that effect. Tanzil means that the, 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 the message of Allah was not developed in any way whatsoever by the human author so there's really no human aspect to the Word of Allah it is a word that is preserved in heaven for all eternity and all that the the messages that came to Muhammad were were recitations they were revelations that he was to recite it wasn't something that he was writing and that the you know in, in biblical you know terms that the spirit of God was, Inspiring the author as he wrote, keeping him from error, using his mind, his personality, his vocabulary. Um, if you you know ever want to study that, just look at um, just look at Paul and look at John. It's very simple. It's usually the hermeneutical right example that people use, the literary example. When you read Paul, he writes nothing like John. Right? When you read John, he writes nothing like Paul. Read the book of Hebrews. It is the most difficult, most technical Greek language in the Bible. And it is the complete opposite of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is very easy. So if you're taking a Greek class, they start you on John. Right? Almost always you're translating the book of John, you're translating the the, the letters of John because it's the easiest Greek in the Bible. Hebrews is the hardest. So no uh, Greek class is going to start you on Hebrews. Okay? Because that would just be like overload. So, so that's what, what we have here. And so the claim of Muslims is, is the Quran has never ever changed. Uh, it has never changed. Okay, That's important to remember because what they're saying is that the Quran from the very beginning has never changed. What was revealed to Muhammad is exactly what they have today. And that is exactly the claim that we have to challenge. And so I bring you to the context of what happened and what was the purpose because when Muhammad died nobody had a Quran in their possession. How could they? As long as Muhammad is still alive, he could receive a revelation. So how could you possibly canonize the Quran during, you know, Muhammad's lifetime? You cannot. So it was left to somebody else to do that. What's amazing to me is that um, Muhammad himself did not even put a process in place by which the Muslims, after his death, would collect the writings, would collect the recitation and the revelations, supposed revelations. And so what gave rise to the collection of, of the Quran? Well, there's an important battle that took place. Yamama. Not yo-mama, but <laughs> Yamama. <laughs> okay. Yamama was a war that was going on, and it's part of what's known as the Apostate Wars. The Apostate Wars. Why was the Battle of Yamama happening? Because after Muhammad died, several of his initial followers were going back to paganism. They were leaving Islam, and so the faithful Muslims began uh, attacking the various tribes that began defecting. And so this gave rise to the Battle of Yamama, where in a certain location, a major war went down where the tribes that were leaving Islam and tribes that were against Islam united against the Muslim community, the Ummah, and uh, there was all these wars. Well, guess what? At the Battle of Yamama, people were dying who were very important to the Muslim community, and these men are known as the Qura and the Hafiz. Okay, the Qura and the Hafiz are basically people who either memorize and are able to recite the Quran from memory. Well, at the at this battle, these folks are being killed. Okay? They're being killed and the Muslim community is panicking because they start realizing, wait a minute, we're losing the Quran because right now the Quran is not in a book somewhere. It is not in a manuscript somewhere. It is by and large in the mind of the hafiz. It's in the mind of the qura, the community that has memorized the Quran. And those individuals are beginning to die. So we better hurry up and do something and begin to collect it. And so... Um, if there's another marker back there, guys, I don't know if you guys can... Uh, looks like this one's kind of dying. I don't want it to die out on me while we're doing this. But, uh, And again, just feel free to ask any question uh, during this whole history, but a lot of it is history. Thank you. So, yes, ma'am.
1: So where do the Muslims say the Quran? Who do they attribute... I get, well, let me see how I'm
0: trying to
1: answer my question. Hold on one second.
0: You say the ten, ten is the handed down doctrine, which is what they believe. Yeah, that's it, the it, way that they got they received the revelations, it was handed down. So they believe that the Quira and the Hafiz, the, the Qura and Hafiz, is what is where it originates. It, I mean, it's not where it originates, it originates from Muhammad, but that's right, where it was a and provided in the book that they have today? No. The Quran is the community of people that memorized it. Okay. okay. So these are memorizers. The Hafiz are those that are able to recite from memory the Quranic text. Okay. 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 And at the Battle of Yamama, that group of people are dying. Okay. And so if they die, the Quran dies with them. Right. So this is a major problem. If the word of Allah, supposedly, resides in the minds of select individuals who are dying, Mm -hmm. and if they all die, then we have no hope of ever recovering the entire revelation. Right? So this is where politics begins to take over. Um, You guys should know this word. Right? Caliph. Right? We've heard about the caliph in ISIS right now. Right? The caliphate. The Caliphate, right? The Caliph is the Arabic word for successor. If I didn't spell that right, you guys can correct me. But uh, the successor of the Prophet. So again, we have four very important successors to the Prophet. Right? You have Abu Bakr. Right. You have Omar. It like that. Let's do a U just so it's a little bit more Arabic sounding. Omar, and then you have Uthman. And last of all, you have Ali. I went to Ali because this is where, okay, this is where the strife, the line of strife, begins to emerge between <coughs> the Shia, the Shia Muslim, and the Sunni, right? Because the Sunni says, the rightful successor of the Prophet Muhammad was Abu Bakr. The Shiites say, no, it was, his, it was his nephew, Ali, Okay, because he's a direct descendant. And so, never the two shall ever agree. <laughs> right? Um, uh, as a matter, matter of fact, Uthman, sorry, Uthman, Very important that you know who Uthman is. Very, very important. So Uthman is murdered after he undertakes the transmission of the Quran, And after his murder, Ali takes over. And can you imagine the politics and the intrigue and just the the, the craziness that took place in the midst of all of that? So this line of strife, I'm sorry, Mr. Obama. You cannot resolve it with a wave of your hand. (laughs) You know? Get Shia and Sunni to get along, you know, it just amazes me, amazes me how he talks about that kind of thing, just so lightly, you <laughs> know, like it's just going to happen, you know. And this is hundreds of years in the making. Mike.
1: some memory the scripture where it says the kingdom against yourself, That's
0: right. This is what I see. Yeah. And in a sense, Muslims know that, and so remember, there is a 70-30% Split here. So 70% of all Muslims are Sunni, 30% are Shiite. Okay. That's right. And so they're constantly battling each other for dominance and prominence. And that's what they're doing. Robert, do you have a question? Yeah, I
1: was looking to see what that was spelled, the way you were spelling
0: Shiite. Uh, yeah, it's, it's got different spellings. Shia, You can just leave the A like oh, that. Right. Shia. Um Shiite, you know, is another way of saying it. Yes, sir. Is there one that's more radical nowadays? No. They both have factions inside that are okay. Osama bin Laden was a Sunni. Ahmadinejad is a Shia. Take your pick. You know, yeah. Sunni Shia doesn't make you more. Uh, I would say the biggest problem, of course, is the Sunnis, because they have the most dominance right now. Saudi Arabia is Sunni. Saudi Arabia has beheaded more people than yeah. ISIS. As ever beheaded in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia under King Abdullah, who just died, by the way. So like Boko yes, Haram and ISIS are Sunnis? Yes. And they actually consider the Shiite Kufar. The kufar. The kufar is the infidel, the unbeliever. They call him Shiite Kufar. They have total disregard for them. And many of the mass killings that have gone on in ISIS, for example, are Shiite Muslims that they've gathered together in mass graves and shot to death because they have no regard for them whatsoever. Yes, sir?
1: One of the things I've never understood is so when Abu Bakr becomes the first uh, caliph after Muhammad dies and then Umar and then Uthman, do the Sunnis disagree that it goes to Ali, or who do they say that that the leadership goes to after Uthman?
0: Yeah, they have their they have their own, own their chain. own little chain of uh, successors as well, and so do the Shiites. So that's where you have the two traditions going astray, you know. Um, but right now, the important names are these three names: Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman, because these are the gentlemen that are going to undertake the task. Right, they're going to undertake the task of bringing together the Quran. And so, uh, you know, Abu Bakar commissions a man by the name of another very important man that you guys have to know. If you know this much already about Islam, just even some of the things I'm teaching you right now, you know probably more than 90% of Muslims. I mean, I am astounded at how much Muslims don't care about this stuff. I get all excited, you know, I'm going to talk to a Muslim and talk about Omar and Uthman and Zayed Ibn Tabit and, you know, all of this. And they're like, huh? Right? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I heard something like that. And I'm just like, what? You know, this is where your religion comes from, is this right here. So Zayed Ibn Tabit was a secretary of sorts that was hired by, um, by Abu Bakr and commissioned to undertake the um, the collection of the Qur'an. And according to Buhari, Volume 6, uh, remember who Buhari is? Who is Buhari? Yeah. Buhari is number one, right? So let's just put that up here. Um right, So Bukhari, Buhari, Buhari... Muslims don't like the way you, you, you pronounce you pronounce Arabic anyway, so don't even try. right So Bukhari, this guy is number one. okay? He's first. In terms of the rank of traditions in Islam, Bukhari is the most authoritative period. okay? And he gives us a lot of very meaningful information about how the Quran came together. This is why I tell Muslims, without the hadith, you're doomed. Because without the hadith, you have no idea where the Quran came from, how it came together, who was involved, who gathered it, who brought together the surahs, the ayahs, uh, who were the men in charge, what was the process? You have none of that without the hadith. What's the problem with that? The hadith is unreliable. The hadith is not inspired, to use our word, you know, the Hadith doesn't claim any divine inspiration. Remember I told you at the very beginning that Buhari, what he did is he took 600,000 traditions and he boiled it down to 6,000, which means only 1%, we're supposed to believe, only 1% were actually reliable, Right? And, uh, and then you get to a point where they're Muslim, where you're making these arguments from the Hadith and they say, well that's Hadith, that's not the Qur'an. <laughs> you know, it's a catch-22. You give up the Hadith, you have to give up the Qur'an. Right? I mean, that's basically the way that it works. But at this time, Zaid ibn Thabit begins the process of collecting the materials of the Qur'an, which at this time existed on very random type materials, palm leaves, uh, camel, sh- you know, the bones of camels, like camel shoulder bones, white stones, parchments, uh, tiny little random fragments that supposedly uh, made up uh, the re- at least part of it, the recitation of the Quran. Again, Buhari, Volume 5, he talks about how um, that everything was in fragmentary form. So if you ever meet a Muslim that says, Oh no, from the very beginning we've had the the Quran. No, you haven't. Because according to Bukhari, it first existed as little fragments, okay? Uh, And very random fragments. As one uh, scholar said, you know, um, Muhammad would have one of these, apparently, one of these visions where um, many have even, historians have even wondered if he was epileptic. He would go into a seizure. He would fall on the floor. He would convulse. He would do all this weird stuff. And then out came a revelation, supposedly, that God had given him. And so then the Ummah, the community of Muslims, are scrambling around trying to write that down on something. So they just grab whatever they can. A palm leaf. Okay. You know, better write this down. And usually what was revealed was so nonsensical, you know, that the Quran is really... an is really an insult to man's intelligence. I mean, it really is. Uh, gr- uh, grammar- grammarians and literary scholars have examined the Quran and they have, uh, they've basically come to the conclusion that on a literary level, the Quran is a joke. You know what I mean? I mean, Certainly compared to the, the Bible. So what know? would be the
1: opinion of like the New Testament then? Like from a literary standpoint, I mean, is it held in high regard? Yes, it is. I mean, obviously, yes, it is. biblical scholars hold it in regard, but I'm just yeah. saying, like,
0: even um, even uh, oh, what's his name? In general. Even um, um, Bart Ehrman, even in apostasy, he still recognizes that the Bible is fascinating book and that it's the most important book ever written. You know, and you know, he still has an appreciation for its literary genius. I mean, you read the Quran and try to even make sense of what it's saying. And then go and read the book of Job and just stand in awe, right, at the beauty and the depth and the the intricacy of God's word. Read the book of Revelation (laughs) and then read the Quran, right? It's almost insulting, again, to our intelligence to say this is the greatest and final revelation of God to man, right? Christians look at that and literally scoff and have to try not to laugh, because it is like that. Um, the, other, the other problem that happened is that under these different battles that we talked about, the Battle of Yamamar, the, there's another battle, Battle of Badar, which is another type of war like that, where an early Muslim war where people are dying off. Well, something else is happening now. Something else is happening among the Kura, the reciters of the Quran. They are beginning to develop their own conflicting recitations of the Quran, and so uh, under Uthman, fast forward a little bit to Uthman, okay, the Caliph. Right <coughs> under Uthman, he takes notice of the confusion and says, "Okay, we have to rescind the Quran. We have to revise the Quran." It is not enough to gather whatever manuscripts that we can, okay, and put them into uh, some form of collection. We have to get all the other manuscripts and all the other writings, and we have to compile one all-authoritative text, right? So this is known as the monic Recension, right? The Uthmonic Recension isn't this what
1: um, ignorant liberal scholars accuse the Bible of? Mm. These group of people get together and say, this is it, we're going to make this the text.
0: Pretty much. I mean, yeah. I had it this week at UNT, you know, a guy trying to tell me, didn't you know Constantine wrote the Bible 375? (laughs) I said, well, if you're talking about the Council of Nicaea, that's 325, first of all. Second of all, no, Constantine did not write the Bible and he had nothing to do with the canonization of the Bible. So yeah, we hear that argument all I mean, the time. That's with the, the but this Newsweek, is Islamic history.
1: That's what the Newsweek uh, author in that article that he wrote, Eichenberg or whatever that guy's name is. Okay. That was one of the things that that he threw out there is that there is just like this scheme of guys getting together several hundred years after the fact and you know and coming up with okay, this is actually what the Bible is. Right. And Basically, trying to revise it. Uh, and of course, James White was Yeah, went off doing what James White does. Yeah, just tore it apart. That's right. But this is acknowledged, though, by Muslims as
0: what happened. Right. Okay, according to some uh, Muslim scholars, there's a gentleman by the name of Salim. Okay? Salim. And Salim was supposedly the first one to have a text. The first one that undertook the task of trying to boil everything down into one text, Salim. The problem with that is that there were others who were more important than Salim, even to the supposedly to the Prophet Muhammad himself. So for example, Buhari, volume five. He says that among all of the reciters, nobody knows the Quran better than Abdullah ibn Masud. So this is an important name, right? So, you have Ibn Masud. So, if you just tell a, a Muslim, haven't you heard of Ibn Masud? They will say, oh yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, don't you know that in Buhari, Volume 5, according to the Hadith, Muhammad said that among all of the Qura, all of the reciters, no one knows the Quran better than Ibn Masud. So, this is very powerful apologetics now. Because you have... Muslim sources saying that Muhammad himself handpicked a reciter by the name of Abdullah ibn Masud as the very best of all the reciters. You see that? Now what's the problem with this? The problem with this is that this is not the Uthmanic text. As a matter of fact, Uthman... Collects his text and there's a couple other guys. There's um, there's there's a gentleman by the name of Ubay Ibn Kab And there's another one by the name of Ibn uh, Jabal. If you just want to take down Ibn Jabal. These are kind of the main guys. Ubay Ibn Ka'b, Ibn Jabal, these men are according to the hadith the most authoritative compilers of the Quran okay and you can read that very easily in um, pretty much any book that's gonna tackle this I know um, James white book certainly tackles this uh, but more importantly you find it in Buhari volume 5 and volume 6 it's all there this is kind of like um, Islam's self-inflicting wound <laughs> you know it's like thank you for the thank you for the you know, the history, but the history is not very kind to you, right? Because what did Uthman do? Why do they call it the recension? This is why. Because not only did Uthman tell, at some point, commission, right, Zaid ibn Tavid, not only did he tell him, look, we need to collect all of the, the recitation of the Quran, all the materials, um, You know, uh, Aisha had a text, um, several wives uh, from Muslim, like Hafsa, she had a text, individual men like Salim, he had a text, Uh, Masud, Ubay bin Kaab, Jabal, they had their own codices. But one thing that Uthman does is that he collects all of those things and then he burns the Quran. So, burn that into your memory, <laughs> okay? But according to Buhari, he burns the texts. Yes, sir?
1: Who burned the texts?
0: Uthman. Uthman. That's right. Caliph Uthman. Or we could say Zaid ibn Tabit under the direction of Uthman, but ultimately Uthman is responsible, right? <laughs> so, why is this a problem? Bearing in mind, oh, I'm glad this words up there. Bearing in, ma- in mind their doctrine of Tanzil. Why is it a problem to burn the codices? Right? You can't go back and check. That's one problem, right? You can't go, by, you can't go back, you can't check it with any other codex. What else? What else is a huge problem? Come on in, you guys. There's plenty of room right in the middle. Wow, you guys really left this middle section totally vacant. <laughs> uh, um, what's another problem? What's another problem with burning the codices? Isn't it something
1: to do with their, uh...
0: And for our visitors, uh, we're studying Islam. So we're doing apologetics on Islam. So, well, we're not a mosque. <laughs> we are a church. <laughs> but we've been talking about Islam we're now in our third week talking about Islam and today we're talking about the transmission of the Quran and so we come to the caliph the successor Uthman and um, and and who ordered the secretary Zaid ibn Tabit, to collect the manuscripts of the Quran and to standardize it into one text and burn everything else So, and I asked, what's the problem with that? And Wally, you said, you can't check it, right? And then I asked the question where we started, the doctrine of Tanzil. This doctrine, remember, meant that Allah handed down, that's the word, handed down to the Islamic community, the Ummah, the recitation. So what's the problem with burning the codices now? Word. <laughs> His handed down word, which, which is where Muslims get the claim that what? The in, in, imitability, or what's the word? That the, that the Quran has never ever changed. <laughs> but if the Quran has never changed, then why is Uthman directing Zayed ibn Tabit to collect the codices from some of the most renowned reciters of the Quran? and burn them and burn them
1: that would include
0: the one by the guy that was considered the best Masud Ibn Masud so yeah these are these are names that uh, these are names that you just have to know I need an index card you do and actually uh, James White in his book actually has a glossary at the back Uh, it's a start it's a a good glossary I don't want to I'm on tape I'm pretty careful (laughs) It's an okay glossary. It works. Uh, but you'll get, like, who is Ibn Masud. Like, he talks about that. Okay, Yeah, so let's bring it out in the open, right? If the word of Allah has supposedly never, ever changed, it has never been corrupted, right? It has never uh, undergone the corruption of man, right? Because that's what they claim for Christians, right? The Injil, the Torah, it has been corrupted. It has been lost. You can't recover it the hands of men have corrupted the texts. But yet, if the Quran from the very, very beginning was never corrupted, why is the Ummah, the community of Muslims, especially the political community, right, the Caliphs, why are they burning codices of the Quran? These are not just any codices. These are codices by people like Ibn Masud, Ubay ibn Kab, Ibn Jamal. All of these folks that are hand-picked by Muhammad as the most authoritative reciters of the Quran the, the reason why folks is because we started out talking about the wars we talked about yamama right not yo mama yamama and then the battle of badar and at these various early wars in islamic history you had conflicting recitations of the Quran. What is the punishment in the Quran for adultery? Are you sure about that?
1: Depends on also lashes, depending on where you're getting
0: Yeah, so if you go to the mosque over here, oh they're everywhere. <laughs> well I've been to many mosques and talked to many imams and they always hand me a Quran, right? They always want to load me up with resources. And uh, every Quran that any mosque around here is going to give you is going to say that the punishment for adultery is a hundred lashes. Okay, but the problem is, is that Buhari in the Hadith, in the traditions of Islam, the Sunnah, and then there you're talking about the biography of Muhammad, you're talking about Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hashim, all these different men, they all record the prophet himself engaged in stoning. And that stoning was a regular practice. So why do you think in Yemen and in uh, uh, Iran and in different other regions of the world, they still stone adulterers to death? And they don't follow what Zayed Ibn Tabit said. Why? Because they prefer the hadith over what's in the present text. And the reason why they do that is because they believe that the early community following men like Ibn Masud and his codex, his codex had the stoning passages. It did not have a hundred lashes. It said stoning and stoned to death. So you find it in the Hadith, you find it in the Sunnah, you find it in the tafsirs, the early Muslims are talking about it, al Tabari. you remember we talked about the commentary of al Tabari? I know all of you remember that. But <clears throat> it's, it's in all the Muslim literature. And this is kind of the, again, the self-inflicting wound of Islam is their own sources. Because this is not, you know, this is not Christians waging a war against Muslims and making things up about Islam or somebody else the Muslims made plenty of enemies you remember what happened at Mecca Muhammad drove out all of the pagans all of the idolaters he drove them out of Mecca they were worshipping hundreds of different deities Muhammad comes back into Mecca after he had gained military power and he drives out the pagans and kills many of them and imposes the jizya, which is the beginning of where the sharia comes from. And as a result of that, Muhammad was a hated man all over the place. People hated Muhammad. Um, Poets mocked him. And guess what happened to those poets that mocked him? Really no different than what's happening right now, right? I mean, it's very, very serious. So he revises the text. He revises and... You remember um, that I said Ibn Masud had the most authoritative text, according to one uh, uh, hadith. Ubay uh, or excuse me, Ibn Masud had to be <coughs> beaten in order to take his codex. Zayed ibn Tabit came in with his people and had to literally strip the codex away from Ibn Masud and beat him for it, because Ibn Masud. Matter of fact, there's a tradition that says that Ibn Masud told Zaid ibn Tabit that when you were in diapers, I knew 70 chapters of the Quran by memory. Basically like, who are you, kid? Right? Like, I walked, he, he was handpicked by the prophet. He walked with Muhammad. He was a companion of Muhammad. And here comes this up-and-coming kid, right, who's basically a nobody at the time, coming in and saying, I am going to establish for all time uh, the final, final text of the Quran. There's so many. I've got about 10 pages of notes and I think I've gone through three. Any questions? Isn't this fascinating? According to Muslim tradition, let's back up a little bit. According to Muslim doctrine, the Quran has never changed. It is the same as it was when it rolled off the tongue of Muhammad's lips. But according to Muslim sources, the Quran has undergone several uh, collections, several codices, and uh, has undergone a revision under Uthman and Zayed Ibn Tabit. That's a big problem. That's a big problem. Any other questions? Comments. Anything? Okay, <clears throat> let's talk about um, maybe some of the earliest manuscripts that we have. Okay, in terms of scripts, listen to this: earliest to be found in the Quranic manuscript evidence is Al Malil. These are different tech. This these are different um, scripts that uh, some of the manuscripts are written in. So you have different scripts. You have the Malil script. You have the Kufic script. You have the Nask script. These are different ways of writing the, the Arabic language. Um, the problem with that is that Zaid ibn Thabit told the men that were compiling the Quran, okay, that they were to try to recover what was known as the Kwarish. Kwarishi script. Why the Qwarish script? you guys remember what the Kwarish was about It is Muhammad's tribe. Muhammad is from the Kwarishi tribe. And so, the early, uh, the, the codex that Zaid ibn tabit is trying to compile, he's saying, write it in the script of the Kwarishi people. The problem with that is that we have no earthly idea what the Kwarishi script is. Today, no one on planet Earth can bring you a Quranic manuscript that has the Kwarishi script, because that is supposedly the script in which it was revealed. But we do have manuscripts, in Ma'il script, Kufik script, these are all places, Kufa, Kufa, which is like in Iraq. Um, all of these different scripts, we have all of that. There is a complete... Uh, Quran in the Nask script, for example, in the Chester Beatty Library. Why is that familiar, Chester Beatty? Because they house some biblical manuscripts there as well, right? Chester Beatty Papyri, it's a biblical papyri held in that library. But we have a script dating back to the year 1000, essentially. So that is how long after Muhammad? And Muhammad died in 632, right? So that's several centuries now after Muhammad. And we have a very, very old Quran. But the problem with it is that it is not in the dialect that Zaid ibn Thabit was told to put it in. Why does it matter? Because you must understand that the way that Arabic dia- diacritical marks work, and what am I talking about here, so... Let's say, I'm not really writing Arabic, but let's say you have an Arabic word and it kind of looks like that. Really <laughs> good? Well, de- That's about that. depending where you put your dots, right, that will depend how you pronounce the word, and sometimes it will depend what the word even means. Okay? So, depending on these diacritical marks, has a huge impact. On the meaning of the text. You have the same thing in Hebrew. The same thing in Hebrew. Sometimes the way that you dot the Hebrew language, this is what makes Hebrew so maddening to try to learn, right, John? (laughs) I remember your seminary years. You're dying. So, you know, according to these dots, though, these are very important, and it changes the meaning of the word. Entire meaning of the entire phrase can change just by one difference in one mark. So, this really matters. And, um,
1: is that the jot
0: and tittle? It's the jot about? and tittle of the, of the Arabic language. That's right. And so we have some very old texts. For example, we have the Samarkand text, which is preserved in the library of Uzbekistan. Again, it is a late 8th century text, which is 8th century. So you're talking late 700s. okay, um, And... It is, again, in the Kufic script. It is not in the script that Zaid supposedly directed um, the collection to be written in, the codex to be written in, right? Uh, It's basically like this. It's as if we had a tradition that said, you know, the Bible was confused. We didn't know what it was. There was different reports of how how to say it, what verses go in there. And then along, let's just say, came King James. And King James told people, put it in Elizabethan English. Okay? And we have a history that records all this. But then when we go back and look at the actual Bibles that were written by King James, supposedly, we find that they're not in Elizabethan English. They're all in, um, I don't know, what's a different English after Elizabethan? They're in modern English, or they're in some other form of English, but not Elizabethan English. Right? It's a different a, a different um, script altogether, right? But the claim is is that you know it has never changed. The problem is that it has changed according to these texts and there are many, many, many different uh, areas where there is huge disagreement. For example, according to Arthur Jeffrey, who is probably probably the most significant textual critic of the Quran, maybe of all time. You might want to check me on that, but I think so. Arthur Jeffrey. um, He has discovered from all of the hadiths and all of the traditions that Ibn Masud's text did not contain Surah 1, Surah 113, or Surah 114. So Surah 1, Surah al-Fatiha, which is the opening surah of the Quran, in Masud's text was not even there. So what does it boil down to? It boils down to the fact that the early Muslims had a hundred and eleven chapters. Today's Quran has hundred and fourteen. That's a big difference. Remember, Robert, we were at the at the Garland rally, and I was talking to that Muslim gentleman. I asked him how many chapters are in your Quran, and he pause for a second, he had to really think about it, and he said, oh, 114. I said, according to Buhari, Volume 5, how many did Ibn Masud have? And he didn't know. And I said, 111. And this is the man that supposedly knew the Quran better than anybody, handpicked by the Prophet Muhammad. Yes, sir? Do you have that, like, exact reference handy? I don't have the exact reference handy, but um, But it's in, uh, it's in uh, you'll find evidence of it as well in Muslim, or Muslim right? Sahih Muslim, Volume 4. Uh, you can try that. You can also try um, Buhari, Volume 5, is where you'll, you'll find evidence of that. Um, also, go to answering-islam.org. There you have, you can have access to Jeffrey's books kind of online. They're really hard to get to. They're really, really hard to get to. Um, Almost impo- it's almost like you're getting on the black market trying to get Arthur Jeffrey's books which is really <laughs> ridiculous really sad Arthur Jeffrey's kind of like the Bruce Metzger of the, Quran, of the of the Quran you know um, and he's written some very very important books about that but they come from all they're scattered uh, all, all around in all the different traditions that's where you're going to find it um, let's see here for example um, in surah 3 ayah 39, Ibn Masud's text read, Then Gabriel called to him, O Zechariah. Now Uthman's text says, Then the angels came to him as he stood praying in the sanctuary. That's two completely different um, uh, traditions, uh, recitations. Two completely different verses. They don't say anything like the same thing. Um, And Muslims want us to believe that it has never, ever changed. So, we reject that on the basis of the hadith. The hadith itself shows us that these early reciters did not recite the Quran the way that that, that Muslims have it today. Um, we're almost out of time. So, any more questions? Yes, sir? I just wondered how, how they
1: came up with the numbering and the ordering when they put the Quran together. How did they know which part to put first since they were collecting scraps from all these?
0: Oh boy, yeah, I know, right? We decided
1: that, how could
0: they? It's uh, right. Um, I don't know the exact logic behind it. I I know this though that the Quran is not written in a chronology, so it's not a chronological system. And the most important thing for you to study when you study the Quran is to determine when those things were written. Not so much why were they put in these different configurations, right? But when were they written? If you don't know when a surah is written, then you won't understand the mentality of the surah. You know what I'm saying? That's right. That's exactly right. So the doctrine of abrogation is very important. We're going to get into more of this. So right now, we've looked at the history of Islam. We've looked at um, we've looked at the Prophet Muhammad himself. We looked now at the transmission of the Quran a little bit. And next week, Lord willing. Um, It's going to be just all-out apologetics, you know, and how to understand Islam. So we're going to talk about Islamic theology and what's wrong with it. We're we're, going to talk about what the Bible, how the Bible uh, refutes uh, Islam. And we're going to talk about the inherent contradictions within Islam. You see? Was the earth created in eight days or was the earth created in six days? Depends what chapter of the Quran you're reading, right? Those kind of contradictions. Yes, sir. I a
1: question, maybe some encouragement for you. Maybe you
0: got to put a book together on this. <laughs> more work. No, course, uh, with the, uh, the yes, sir. I would I would want nothing nothing more, uh, Mike, than to do that. Um, I want to give you one chapter, okay, guys? Easy argument that you can use with any Muslim, okay? And I've yet to hear one good answer. And that is Chapter 7 verse 124. Okay? What is wrong with that verse? This is what's wrong with that verse. In the Quran, it is saying that Aaron and Moses and their company approached Pharaoh. So how long ago was that? We know from biblical history that this is what? Huh? Yeah, this is, you know, this is 18 centuries BC. Right? so This is a long time before uh, Christ, or the Roman Empire, or anything like that. Um, but what does Surah 7, 124 say? It says that Pharaoh threatened Moses and his group with crucifixion. Huh? So, they didn't have crucifixion in Egypt back in the days of Pharaoh and Moses. When did crucifixion uh when did it first emerge on in the world?
1: Wasn't it Alexander.
0: What's that? The Greek Empire, Alexander the it's prior to the Greek Empire, it was prior to Alexander the Great. Prior to that, it was right around the Medo-Persian period. So you're talking 13 centuries later, after Pharaoh, <laughs> after the, certainly the Exodus generation. So the Quran is off by about 13 centuries on crucifixion. And any standard encyclopedia will tell you that. Encyclopedia Britannica, Encyclopedia, you know, of the world, uh, Will Durant, all these different sources will tell you that there's no such thing as crucifixion in Egypt, right? And then when you talk to Muslims, what is the only possible way out? Well, I've had one Muslim tell me, "That's you know the encyclopedia. That's the word of man. You know, if the Quran says it." The Quran knows what it's talking about. God knows more than people do. And therefore, yes, crucifixion was happening in Egypt. Right? So they're reduced to what? Fideism. Right? Accepting things a priori. Saying, you know, um, regardless of what the facts say, we just believe it because. That's not what the Bible calls us to do, right? God of the Bible says, come, let us reason together. Right? Faith is the certainty of the things that we hope in, right? We, we, our faith is not a leap in the dark, right? It's based on the bedrock of truth. So anyway, I'm way out of time, so now I'm in trouble. Let's go to worship.